Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. So the name John Jacob Astor is one that comes up throughout U.S. history. They're not all the same one when you hear that name. There were several. There are a lot. <laughs> um, and it's one of those names that I feel like is a shorthand for a super rich person. Yeah, and just the Astor part, too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but because there have been so many, sometimes people may not realize that that they're uh, talking about different ones. This leads to some confusion when you're actually talking to someone about who he was. The one we most recently mentioned on the podcast, which was in our Charles Chapin episode when we talked about newspaper coverage of the Titanic, was John Jacob Astor IV, who famously died on the ship. But the family's fortune and name recognition began well before that with the first John Jacob Astor, who came to the U.S. from Germany not long after the colonies gained their independence as a nation. And today we're going to talk about that start of what is now called an American dynasty and how Astor became the first millionaire in the United States. Quick heads up, a lot of this involves the fur trade. So if the discussion of animals being used as fur is distasteful to you, maybe you want to skip this one. But I will say we're not talking about any of the details of how that's accomplished there's a brief mention of numbers of animals late in the episode, but uh, lo- a lot of fur trade and trapping talk just in general. So John Jacob Astor was born July 17, 1763 in Waldorf, Germany. His father, Johann Jakob Astor, was a butcher. The family was working class. His mother was Maria Magdalena Wolfelder. Maria and Johann had gotten married in 1750, Some accounts indicated that John Jacob was the youngest of three sons, but the Astors also had more children. One son died in infancy. It appears there were several sisters as well, although they really have not been given much attention at all in the historical record. No, I saw like a reference to a Christina getting married, and that was kind of all that I ran up against in my research. Uh, John Jacob was christened Johann Jakob like his father, but we'll use his anglicized name here to retain clarity, and we'll talk about when he made that switch officially. And when John Jacob was three, his mother Maria died. When Johann Jakob remarried to a woman named Christina Barbara, the second marriage produced six more children, and that was a situation that led to a lot of strife. Obviously, that meant that there were a lot of people being supported on a pretty meager income. But also, most accounts indicate that there was a pretty clear division between Johann Jakob's children from his first marriage and his children from the second marriage, and that those two family groups never really were able to integrate in a harmonious way. All of the kids from the first marriage are said to have moved out as soon as they were able to. In John's case, for a brief period of time, his father tried to teach him to be a butcher. And John hated it. 
His father had a reputation for being a very good butcher, but also kind of a hard man to get along with. And John didn't especially like the work itself. His older brother, George, had moved to London and was doing well as a flute maker, and his brother, Henry, had become a butcher in New York. Both of John's older brothers wrote to him and encouraged him to join them in their respective locations and trades, and the unhappy John Jacob broke from his father and went to London to make musical instruments with his brother, George. It was in London that he started to go by the anglicized version of his name, also, he would later just go by the initials JJ. Yeah, there's a, a a kind of sad circumstance here where even though he hated the butcher trade, he was apparently very good at it. Um, and it was one of those things like, you would be fine. You would have a job for life. And it's like, yeah, but I hate it. It just seems like a line of work that would be particularly unpleasant if you really hated it. Right, and grueling. And also, I think he probably associated it with his dad, who he had problems with. Um, John lived in London for four years making wind instruments with his brother. And during that time, his brother Henry wrote really frequently about the many opportunities that were available to a young man in the newly formed U.S. So in 1783, at the age of 20, that's one of those things that gets a little wiggly in the historical record, his exact age, but most places report 20. John Jacob boarded a ship headed to North America. The move from London to the U.S. has also led to Astor sometimes being identified as English-American instead of noting his birth in Germany. Just as an FYI, if you see him as an an English-American or um, British-American, he was German. Uh, This trip that he made normally took about two months, but this particular one took four because the ship had to drop their route and move south to avoid pack ice that was forming in the Atlantic. It was springtime, but it was, they had some late freezes. The ship actually got frozen in ice in Chesapeake Bay, despite all of this maneuvering to try to avoid that problem. After the ice got thick enough that people could walk on it, some passengers walked the rest of the way. There's some discrepancy in accounts of whether Astor did this. Some accounts suggest that he waited for the ice to break up so that he could go ashore with all of his cargo. That included some instruments that he had packed to sell in New York. Others indicate that he eventually gave up on waiting and made the walk on the ice to Baltimore. However he got there, he stayed in Baltimore, Maryland for several weeks. He made friends with a shop owner there who helped him sell several instruments. Once he had made a little money, he headed to New York to meet his brother Henry and Henry's wife, Dorothea. When he arrived in New York City in 1784, it had roughly 23,000 residents. That blows my mind. We'll talk about that a little bit in the <laughs> the uh, Friday episode because I'll talk about how I, in my frame of reference, made that number make sense. And then you'll okay. think I'm ridiculous. But so. John Jacob opted not to work in the butcher trade with his brother Henry. Instead, he ended up working as a street vendor for a little while for a confectionery shop. So he sold baked sweets from a cart, which sounds a little bit dreamy, uh, although probably not very heavy on the money making. Then he moved on to work as an assistant to a Quaker fur dealer named Robert Brown. And this was work that Astor really took to, even though initially all he really did in terms of his job uh, requirements or his duties was beat the furs to keep moths at bay. But his boss really liked him and saw that he was very smart and he had a lot of initiative in terms of learning the trade. And so he soon upped his weekly pay from the original $2 a week that he was giving him. And he also, the boss also gave him an engraved silver pocket watch. So there was very clearly an affinity between these two men. Astor was still selling flutes during this time as a second income. And as he made money, he lived fairly frugally. His fur job included room and board. The money he saved up was invested in more flutes to sell, as well as in animal skins that he prepared and put into storage. Once he had a large stock of them, he would travel back to London briefly to sell the furs through a consignment shop and pick up a fresh stock of flutes from his brother. He also made deals with two piano manufacturers to act as their New York salesperson, 
John was obviously savvy when it came to business. He started to do really well for himself. On September 19, 1785, Astor married Sarah Cox, the daughter of his landlady. Over the course of the next 17 years, they had eight children. Magdalene was born in 1788. Sarah was born in 1790, but died in infancy. John Jacob II, or John Jacob Jr., you'll sometimes see him listed, was born in 1791. William Backhouse was born in 1792. Dorothea in 1795. And then Henry was born in 1797, but died in 1799, so just a toddler. Their daughter Eliza was born in 1801, and a son who lived only a few days was born in 1802. When John and Sarah married, the two of them continued to live at the boarding house, but they had two rooms of their own. One was their living area, and the other was set up as a showroom for John's musical instruments. Sarah and John were similarly driven when it came to business, and she both assisted in his business work and encouraged him to try new ventures. Yeah, you'll often see her mentioned as though she was really kind of his right hand. She took care of a lot of administrative and managerial duties for his business as it grew. There are some debates over the nature of their union, whether or not um, he had married her for her dowry and as kind of a really good business arrangement. But they stayed together a very long time. He later told his children that he married her because she was the prettiest girl he had ever seen, even though most accounts say she was not especially pretty. Uh, So it's unclear how much their relationship was um, romantic versus uh, union through business interests. Uh, But they made a life together for sure. In autumn of 1785, so not long after he became a husband, John Jacob Astor made his first fur trading trip to Albany. This meant that he was going directly to trappers to acquire furs rather than purchasing skins from vendors in the city, which is what he had done up to that point. According to lore, he would make his way into the woods and then traded and became friendly with just about every trapper he encountered. He got to know local Native American tribes and purchased from them. Remember that according to lore phrasing here. And he also did business with European trappers. When he had a full load of furs, he would take them to Albany and pack them on barges and travel with them back to New York. He made a lot of profit, but he still had to keep his business kind of small because he was a one-man operation and he really wanted to expand. And so after gathering more funds, he was able to expand his efforts beyond Albany to Montreal, which he visited for the first time in late summer of 1787. So, so far, this all just sounds like a guy from humble means who hustled a lot to build an empire. That's not wrong, but it also does not tell the whole story because John Jacob Astor had a reputation for being ruthless. It said that nobody could ever get the upper hand in a deal with him. When it came to dealing with indigenous people, he used a lot of different manipulations, including only making deals with Native American trappers after he had first gotten them drunk. He also fast-talked a lot of people to make them think they were getting the better of him while he was actually landing an agreement that weighed really heavily in his own favor. Yeah, I read one account. This was an ongoing problem that a lot of trappers were selling or giving Native American tribes alcohol before they started negotiations. And so some posts were actually outlawing that. And if they did, he was like, well, I'm not going there anymore. Like, that was one of his key tools. Um, So just know, (laughs) there's a lot of undocumented behavior that is not cool in here. Um, Coming up, we are going to talk about how J.J. Astor expanded his wealth by taking advantage of really just about every opportunity he saw. But before we do that, we will pause for a quick sponsor break. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet, and also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. When the Jay Treaty of 1794 was signed, it opened up new options for Astor in terms of scale. So the Jay Treaty was an agreement between the U.S. and Great Britain that was not especially popular in the U.S., but it did put to rest a number of outstanding issues that were still lingering from the Revolutionary War. And one of the elements of this treaty, and the one which was significant for Astor, was a change in export permissions. So prior to 1794, Britain could send exported goods to the U.S. without much limitation, and it did. But the U.S. couldn't reciprocate because there were steep tariffs and restrictions on items shipped into Britain from the U.S. Additionally, northwestern posts in North America that had remained occupied by the British were finally turned over to the U.S. So this meant that for J.J. Astor, who traded furs in the northeastern parts of the U.S. and into Canada, he was just going to have a much easier time traveling around to purchase skins and ship them back to New York. And then once those skins were ready, he could export them as a good on their own in bulk instead of having to travel to London and work through consignment dealers on a small scale. As he expanded his business in this way, Astor also started to diversify his revenue streams. He invested in real estate. By the start of the 19th century, John Jacob Astor had accumulated $250,000, and he put that money to work by continuously investing. He increased his real estate holdings at just about every opportunity. At this point, which was the year 1800, New York City had more than doubled in size from the time he arrived there. It had about 50,000 residents. Astor saw that the population was only going to keep growing, and he knew that if he bought property, it would increase in value as more and more people needed places to live. So he bought and bought. If an orchard or a farm was struggling, he bought it and often just let it sit he bought property up and down the Hudson River, even property that no one saw any value in. Yeah, he sort of infamously was known to just buy swampland and be like, it's going to be something one day. Somebody's going to need this. Uh, he was not wrong. His next move in terms of diversifying his income was to start trading in China. So just as he had done in sending furs to Europe and bringing flutes back, he started sending furs to China and bringing silk and tea back. On April 6, 1808, Astor established the American Fur Company in New York. It would not only exist in New York, it had offices in many places, and he eventually set up a kind of a, a headquarters in 
um, Mackinac Island, which is now part of Michigan, uh, because it was closer to the fur. But as a as a business entity, its home base was New York. Now, up to this point, when he started American Fur, he had a number of different kind of small businesses that were sort of specialized in who they traded with. But when he founded American Fur, he consolidated all of those smaller businesses under one big umbrella. This would eventually lead to a monopoly on the fur trade, as competitors were either destroyed by outbidding that was enabled by Astor's wealthy company, or they just got absorbed. At a time when the fur trade was rapidly expanding throughout the country, it seemed that Astor always managed to outmaneuver anyone who was trying to carve out a territory of their own. The American Fur Company is often cited as the first business monopoly in the United States. The formation of the larger company was, of course, a strategic business move motivated in part by the Lewis and Clark expedition. Astor had read all about the famous expedition and in 1810 decided to start a fur trading network on the West Coast. The idea was that this new venture, the Pacific Fur Company, would give J.J. Astor a major advantage in dealings with China. The Pacific Fur Company could send a ship to the coast of what's now Oregon, set up a fort, and then get fur in the Pacific Northwest and have it on ships much faster than any other fur company could get on its way from Montreal to China via New York. At the nexus of this web was the town of Astoria, founded in 1811 on land that Astor claimed for the United States and, of course, was named after him. But early into the efforts to establish this hub, the War of 1812 started between the U.S. and Britain, During this conflict, Astoria was captured by the British. Astor's trading network was unable to ever become established. He was always ready to capitalize on a tragedy, though, so Astor bought a lot of skins very cheap from trappers in the Northwest who were eager to get out of the business and out of the area as hostilities ramped up. Yeah, he took advantage of everything. Uh, Astoria, Oregon still exists, by the way. <laughs> it, just, it just never became his his fur trading nexus that he had hoped. The War of 1812 was, of course, costly for the United States, and the U.S. Treasury was seeking ways to come up with the money to pay for it. So enter John Jacob Astor and two rich associates, Stephen Gerard and David Parrish. In what has been called the first bond syndicate in the United States and the start of investment banking in the United States, these millionaires bought government bonds worth $100 at the price of $88 each in massive sums. Uh, I have seen various numbers reported, but it all seems to average out to about $10 million each that they spent. To be clear, Astor, even though he had grown his business a lot, he didn't have that cash in ready money. He borrowed some from banks with some of his real estate holdings as collateral. And per the terms of the bonds, which is different than what the Treasury had initially offered but what they negotiated, the full $100 value would be paid to the bondholder over the course of 13 years. This was essentially a loan with very clear terms on how the interest was going to come back. Some of the bonds were resold as an immediate money back for these investors, but Astor held on to a lot of his. These bonds dropped in value initially, though. When Washington City was burned by the British in the Chesapeake campaign, bonds flooded the market as people thought that if they did not sell them for something, they would never see any return on their $88 per bond investment. And Astor bought and bought and bought and just waited for the tide to turn so he could collect the full $100 on each of them as the U.S. Treasury made good on its deal. Newspaper editor Horace Greeley once estimated that through some cloaked bond buyouts, in addition to his on-the-books transactions, J.J. Astor may have made all his money back plus another 50%. (sighs) I mean, again, weasel, but astute. Uh, And though he made a name for himself and the beginning of his fortune in fur trade and deals like his war financing, the real source of Astor's financial success and what really enabled him to start essentially a dynasty was his astute real estate investments in New York City. We mentioned already that he had bought a lot of property in New York. He owned an estimated 3% of all of New York, 
3% may not sound like much, but we're talking about one person. Uh, so it is actually pretty significant. And by the late 19-teens, Astor's various enterprises and holdings had grown so much that he made his son, William Backhouse, return from studying abroad to help him run things. William didn't especially want to get into the family business. He was kind of shy. He was more interested in art and literature than he was in his dad's business. But once he was in charge of things, he was as ruthless as his father. And some historians have even characterized him as more ruthless. One of the big legacies of John Jacob and William Backhouse Astor was the construction of huge tracts of tenements. And this is a situation where, in a lot of ways, they very carefully put together business deals that protected them. They never built any tenements. William became an expert in the ins and outs of property law. They owned the land, then leased it to developers. Then those developers would sublet it to basically slumlords who would build out the entire 25 by 100 foot lots with buildings that could house dozens of families. Keep in mind that surveyed lot size of 25 by 100 feet, that's 7.6 by 30.5 meters, was based on how much space the surveyors of New York City initially thought would be adequate for a single family. But because this was all operated by subletters, the Astors, who enjoyed a life of just extraordinary luxury by this point, were twice removed from any real responsibility and could claim ignorance when problems related to the poor quality of life in the tenements was brought up. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that on the behind the scenes on Friday. It becomes its own whole story, and I didn't want to sidetrack the entire John Astor thing since William was really, in a lot of cases, spearheading these initiatives. But it's it makes me very angry. Um, on April 4th, 1834, Astor returned to New York aboard the passenger ship Utica coming from England after having been at a wedding. It had been kind of a terrible voyage. It was full of delays. But the news that Astor received at the dock was worse than anything he had endured at sea. He learned that his wife Sarah had died a week earlier. Maybe. The timing on this is something that becomes really hard to pin down. That story is one way it's relayed, but the date of Sarah's death is kind of all over the place um, when you see it in different accounts. Sometimes it's listed as 1832, sometimes 1834, and sometimes, and I think this is a result of a good old-fashioned typo, 1842, but that typo was in a place that people took as gospel and repeated it a whole lot. Uh, one of those early 1830s dates is almost certainly correct. There is even a very well-reviewed Astor biography that I read that lists the 1834 date, but then later mentions Astor being a widower in 1832, so keep all of that in mind. Before we get into Astor's life after Sarah's death, we will take a quick break and hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History Class going. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. 
If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian, someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day, seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if everyone's being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. In June 1834, John Jacob Astor sold his interest in the American Fur Company. It was, at the time, the largest commercial organization in the U.S. And there have been some characterizations that Astor lost his interest in business when Sarah died and that a lot of his behavior in the years that followed her death was driven by grief. And he did certainly grieve for her. He had felt especially bad that he was not home when she died. He had similarly been absent for the deaths of other family members, and the accumulated guilt over that was something that he wrote about to his friend, Wilson Price Hunt. But there were definitely other factors involved in the decision to liquidate his business interests. American Fur Company had been capturing and killing animals for their skins for years at this point, It was estimated in one ledger report that the company had sold an average of 26,000 buffalo skins a year and 25,000 beaver skins a year for 15 consecutive years. Those numbers are pretty staggering. There was no thought in the trade for sustainability. Additionally, styles and tastes were shifting. He noted on a trip to London in the 1830s that men's top hats were being made of silk instead of beaver, And silk from China was no longer at the same level of demand because European textile houses were making gorgeous fabrics of their own. Animal pelts were also seen with increasing suspicion as a possible disease vector at a time when cholera was spreading rapidly. In short, Astor saw that the revenue streams that had brought him so much wealth were soon going to slow to a trickle or even dry up. That would mean he would lose money instead of making it, and he just was not interested in that. No, he was interested in building a hotel, though. This is interesting because, as we said, he didn't really build much of anything, but he really wanted to make a hotel. Um, He decided to take on the project of building a six-story luxury hotel on Broadway between Barclay and Vesey Streets. That's the area where the World Trade Center complex would eventually be built. Using this tract of land meant that he had to tear down existing homes, which he bought out. It also meant tearing down Astor's home, so he had another built at the corner of Broadway and Prince. But the resulting Astor House Hotel was a 300-room luxury hotel that drew a lot of famous visitors over the years, including Abraham Lincoln, Edgar Allan Poe, whose stay inspired the story The Mystery of Marie Roget, and Charles Dickens, who found the hotel itself to be lovely, but the pigs eating garbage on the street outside to have kind of ruined the whole thing. We've talked before on the show about how dirty New York could be during this time. (laughs) Once he retired, Astor made a deal with Washington Irving to write his biography. We've done a show on Washington Irving before. Irving would not take payment from Astor and instead negotiated to have the book's publishing rights in their entirety. His reasoning, he would later write, was that, quote, he was too proverbially rich a man for me to permit the shadow of a pecuniary favor to rest on our intercourse. Irving did, however, ask Astor to pay for his research assistant, his nephew Pierre Monroe Irving, who received $3,000 for going through all of Astor's papers, assembling an outline and an organizational structure to the work, Irving, incidentally, tried to get a good sense of how the trapping business had worked and had been perceived from the Native American perspective, although it's unclear what information he may have gotten 
as he asked for that information from Samuel G. Drake, who was a white man who was considered to be an expert on the matter. Yeah, that struck me as interesting because it's like, I don't trust your version of the story 100%, but the expert I'm going to ask is also a rich white guy who probably doesn't really understand what's what was going on there. Uh, but the resulting book that Irving wrote, Astoria, or Anecdotes of an Enterprise Beyond the Rocky Mountains, came out in the fall of 1836. And this book sold a lot of copies, and it got a lot of praise. And that sounds great, but Washington Irving was a little embarrassed by the whole thing. His book, despite having taken no money uh, and to try to stay objective, was really soft on Astor. It made him seem like a great guy. And he knew that he had kind of rushed it. And there were definitely critics who called it out as being Astor propaganda. But the book remained very popular, and it was published in several translations, and all of this made J.J. Astor very pleased. Although he was not actively working after selling American Fur Company, Astor continued to make money in real estate when a massive fire during a particularly cold winter took out most of the tenements on Astor's land, he lost nothing because of the way those deals had been set up. The lessees were responsible for the buildings, not Astor. Rebuilding was at their expense, and if they opted not to rebuild, Astor just rented that to someone else. During economic crashes, Astor always sailed through, often buying mortgages for deeply discounted rates when others were struggling and never hesitating to seize the property when the original owner defaulted. Yeah, he was, that was like a thing he did a lot of. Like, oh, you you need a loan or you need a little help with a mortgage? Yeah, I got you. Oh, you can't make your payments? It's mine now. Like, he was not the least bit um, hesitant in that. There is also a very wild story about how Astor got a massive chunk of Midtown Manhattan in a real estate deal and flipped it for an exorbitant sum. In 1803, a whiskey distiller named Medivh Eden had fallen into financial trouble, took out a mortgage on his family's property, which was known as Eden Farm, and that sat on Bloomingdale Road. That's now known as Broadway. And the farm stretched from present-day 42nd to 46 streets, and it took up the space from Bloomingdale west to the Hudson River. So if you know this, the island of Manhattan, you get a sense of how big this was. And also, if you know New York City, you know that Times Square sits right in that space now. So seeing the value of this property, J.J. Astor in 1803 had paid $25,000 to buy out one-third of the mortgage. Over time, Eden defaulted and Astor took control of it. Over the years, there was a lot of lengthy legal battle over the property between Astor and Eden's heirs because they claimed that that wasn't really a fully legal transaction. But ultimately, the millionaire settled with the family for a mere $9,000. That probably seemed like a lot then. But over time, he leased some of the lots and he also sold off lots from the property, leaving the farm itself largely intact and even though he hadn't sold all of it, he still made $5.1 million off of it, off of what had been a $34,000 uh, investment, if you count both his initial buyout and the $9,000 settlement. It wasn't until after Astor's death, even, that the remaining sections of that chunk of land were sold by Astor's heirs. By the late 1840s, Astor had a number of health issues. His health was really pretty feeble. He had digestive problems. He had trouble sleeping. He had experienced some paralysis. John Jacob Astor died in New York City on March 28, 1848, at the age of 84. His fortune at the time of his death was estimated to be between 20 and $30 million. That was roughly one-fifteenth of all the personal wealth in the U.S. at the time. This was actually difficult to calculate, despite a lot of people wanting to know this number. But because so much of his wealth was tied up in real estate at a level that nobody had really seen before, it took a long time to just tabulate this whole thing. In the years from 1840 to his death, he had made more than $1.2 million in rental income alone that far outpaced his spending in acquiring new real estate. Yeah, I had read one figure that he had spent like $750,000 to $800,000. And it's like, yeah, but he was just making tons of money. Like he had no, it was all black in his ledger. There was no no red. 
Uh, If you've ever been to the New York Public Library, which is lovely, you could say you've benefited from one of the bequeathments of John Jacob Astor and his will. When he died, he allocated more than $400,000 of his fortune for the creation of a public library. This is one of those things that sounds deeply benevolent, but it's really him making good on a promise that he had made to city leaders a decade before he died. But though he had said, yes, we're building a library, he had then dithered on where to put the building, what collections he thought should be purchased for it, and who should be involved in the project, and it dragged on and on. It kind of seemed like while he was alive, he didn't want to give up that chunk of money. But with the money from the will, that project was finally carried out, and then in 1895, the Astor Library was consolidated with the Lenox Library, with additional money from the Tilden Foundation to form the New York Public Library. Uh, As a point of note, though, that central building for the New York Public Library, which is pretty iconic, was not built until 1911, though, so well after he had died. Astor's will was unique in that it was just incredibly wily. He left money for various needs and support of his family. His oldest son, John Jacob Jr., was not going to inherit the bulk of it or take on the family business, It's not clear exactly what the situation was, but based on some pretty hazy accounts, it appears that John Jacob Jr. may have had some sort of developmental disability or some other illness, like something going on. Yeah, the descriptions of him call him varying things, like even even things that are outside of the completely inappropriate and outdated language. It's like, he was a very weak boy. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. We don't know. But there, it seems like that was, he was definitely um, not talked about very much. So we don't have great information. So William had always been John Jacob Sr.'s intended protege, but Astor also truly adored William's son, John Jacob Astor III, and wanted to leave him a significant part of the fortune. But he also didn't trust government laws to basically stay the way that they would to protect that actual trust. It seemed like the law could change and that trust would no longer be safe. There were laws in place that limited trusts. So Astor left his son, William, half of the bulk of his fortune, and the other half went into a trust for John Jacob III. He also asked William to make a will with this same setup, with John Jacob III getting half the family fortune and John Jacob III's oldest son, who was not yet born, getting the other half of the trust. This was intended to prevent the family money from ever transferring to anyone in one lump sum that could then be mismanaged or otherwise lost. Three generations of Astors followed suit before great-grandson William Waldorf broke this chain. Even with his savvy arrangements, it took more than four decades for all of Astor's will, which included a lot of smaller sums for various charities, to be fully settled. That will had a lot of very sort of odd and nebulous bequeathments of like, I want to give money to the elderly of Waldorf, Germany for their care. And it's like, okay, but there's nothing set up to handle this. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so his executors had to create a lot of new funds and smaller trusts and uh, accounts that could handle some of his his charitable bequeathments, which were, uh, considering his immense fortune, pretty pretty tiny, really. Um, (laughs) Oh... John Jacob Astor, I have to simultaneously admire his intellect and absolutely loathe his attitude about other people and how they should be taken advantage of at every opportunity. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it's an uh, I'll talk about it behind the scenes. I have a juxtaposition of another wealthy man we have talked about before on the show that I actually like. But in the meantime, I have listener mail. Okay. Uh, This is from our listener, Alessandra, who has a question about pronunciation. She writes, Hi there. I love your podcast and your perspectives on history. You convey a lot of respect to the cultures and people you discuss. I really enjoyed your recent episode on Pauline Johnson and love the anecdotal inclusion of the house with identical entrances, front and back. Such a beautiful example of blending and honoring two cultures in one family. I'm a born and bred Vancouverite, and I don't know anything about her, so thank you. You seem to take a lot of care in French pronunciation, which is lovely. I've noticed that you apply French 
pronunciation to Italian names. I know the last episode of the Mancini sisters is a poor example to give because they're Italians that moved to France, but even in giving the birth names, you say Italian names in a French way. It can be distracting. I find I just skip the episodes with Italian subjects now. Uh, she gives some examples, which I'm not going to do because she probably won't like it. Uh, anyway, I'm likely coming across as a super Karen, but I love my other language and wanted to share in case you didn't know. In tribute, I attach photos of Luke, a Newfoundland, Bilbo, our sweet gray prince, and Butterfly, the cat who likes to shower with his humans. I'd include a picture of him showering, but I can't seem to get one without including body parts you might want to see. I know that trial. I had a cat that used to shower with me. Um, here's the t- <laughs> <laughs> Both Tracy and I have only ever formally studied French as another language. I grew up speaking it a little bit, so that's always my default on anything. Yeah, I like I took three years of French in high school and then t- six units of French in college and then have been really trying to like refresh my French through Duolingo there was a break in there because I couldn't concentrate on anything because of the early pandemic months. But like, you know. Yeah, my Duolingo fell apart at that point in time Yeah, I'm much better with the Duolingo now. So I think it's like not unreasonable to expect the one non-English language that we've had formal study into to like kind of bleed into some other things that we try to say. But I started typing an answer to the same email and was like, I'm honestly not sure what you mean because I researched this particular episode that prompted the email um, and there were various audio lectures and presentations and things like that from people who have either studied the Mancini family or the Mazarinists or who work for archives and libraries that have stuff about them in their collections and like their pronunciations were basically what we followed. I think probably one of the uh, examples that was in here was Giovanni, and I'm pretty sure the way I said that was informed way more by having studied the work of Nikki Giovanni, who pronounces that name much differently than an Italian person would, than having ever studied French. There's a, a a wonderful, I mean, here's the thing, right? Like, I it's not that we're taking more care in French pronunciation. I think it just comes more naturally to both of us. The other thing is that um, I, I, if it makes you feel any better, there are French people that don't like the way we pronounce things either. Yeah, we've also gotten emails from people who say, I'm not listening to any episode you do that involves French because your right. French pronunciation is overpronounced and annoying. <laughs> and I don't, uh, to be clear, Alessandra, I don't want this to sound like we're piling on you, but as an, an explanation and exploration of how different languages and pronunciations work, I this is a bit of a divergement, but I hope everyone will come on this journey with me. There is a... Um, a TikTok creator who is like a master bartender. He designs cocktail programs for like Michelin star restaurants named Chris Lauder. Check him out if you want. And he had a wonderful thing when recently the Negroni Spagliato became like the it thing in pop culture. With Prosecco in it. And with I mean, by saying Spagliato, that's what you're saying. You're yeah. actually saying a messed up Negroni because Spagliato means mistake. Um, that is neither here nor there. But... There were some people that were complaining that people weren't pronouncing Spagliato correctly. And he was like, but if we all know that that's what we're getting at, maybe we could just get past that and recognize that we're all trying to connect about something. And doesn't that sound like more fun? And I was like, I kind of love this. I do it too. (laughs) Yeah. I think that sounds great. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's kind of like when somebody is, is not from your city, even though like, we all speak English, uh, for example, or most of us in the U.S. speak English, but, like, they will come to Atlanta and we have a street in Atlanta that looks like it should be Ponce de Leon, and it is Ponce de Leon. Yep. And so I always find it quite charming when people mispronounce it, and I think it's sweet because I know exactly where they're talking about, and I don't, you know... Yeah, I promise we're trying real hard to say things as well as we can. (laughs) Always, always. I mean, I never want to offend anyone. Italian is very hard for me. Um, On the other show, I host Criminalia. I grew up speaking French. My co-host on that show, Maria, is from an Italian family and grew up speaking Italian. And we crack each other up because we just, 
we got to meet in the middle because she has she struggles with French and I struggle with Italian. But it's like the what really gets me a lot of the time in Italian is where the accent on a word goes mm-hmm. is not natural to me at all. And so then if I try to hit it, I sound really, really silly. But we're always trying. I promise. I promise. I promise. No matter what um, language you speak that we have butchered, I promise we are always, always trying we're to trying do our real best. hard. And trying yeah. to be respectful. We are basically always going to sound like beginners with trying to, pro- to pronounce most languages because, because we are. And we can practice and practice and practice, and we're still beginners. Yeah, I mean, part of that, right, is that, like, if we were to set aside the history research and only spend the time learning the languages, we would not be able to do history shows. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like that's what I've done. <laughs> It's tricky. It's tricky. Tracy does so much better with Native American language than I do. Um, and I always feel really guilty about it. Like, we, there's, there are always places where, like, any one person is going to struggle more with one or another just based on how their, yeah. their, their palate and tongue come together to make noise. And we also have a lot of examples where, like, there is an American English pronunciation for something that is taught in schools and is in American dictionaries that is not how a person from another place would say it at all. Like, Newfoundland. Yeah. As I had as a vocabulary word pronounced Newfoundland when I was in fourth grade. Listen, I will never forget the crayon wars. Those were yeah. trying times. People got um, very upset. If I just said it in a way you don't like, I'm so, so sorry. I, please, I'm not trying to instigate anything. Uh, in any case, I hope that clarifies. Like I said, I'm totally not trying to pile on. This just seemed like a good a, a good jumping off point to talk about how kind of uh, tricky it can be to cover all these these linguistic shifts that come up in the podcast. Um, if you would like to write us, tell me how I just said crayon the incorrect way. You can do that if you want. Uh, that's it, History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History, or you can subscribe to Stuff You Missed in History class on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable.